Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him here with two prime examples of horror. First, we have this book, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which completely shocked the entire world. Secondly, we have Sherman's report card, which completely shocked PS32. Which brings us to the man we're going to visit today. My teacher, Mr. Peabody? No, the man who wrote the most famous horror stories of all time, Edgar Allan Poe. He set away that controls for Baltimore, Maryland in the year 1832. I did get an A in hockey, Mr. Peabody. That's hooky and step inside. The way back, which I invented one morning while waiting for a bus, responded magnificently. And there we were in Poe's study. All right, my friends. I'm here in a hotel room recording. And I need you to sit the way back because this is the last episode 4-313. So you have to pretend it's two weeks ago. And if you're uh, hearing this in the distant future, then just ignore all of this. So set the way back. Hello and welcome to episode 4-313 of the Run Run Live podcast. It is a beautiful day, and I feel very lucky with all the gifts that I've been blessed with. Part of the blessing is all of you, the people I've befriended over the years doing this show. My life is so much richer for it, so thank you. Give yourself a pat on the back. I got to see one of my online friends this week. I was out in San Diego, and I originally planned to hop the red eye back, but decided to stay over instead, and Zen Runner drove out to meet me, and we went for a run together and had a quick supper and a great talk. I love talking with Adam because he's super smart and has a deep well of intellectual experience to draw from. And I was telling him how I was working my way through the Headspace meditation app and how some of the days it was super hard to get my mind to quiet down. And he told me that your mind is like water. Sometimes it's calm. Sometimes it's choppy. You can't really control that, but you can manage your life around the knowledge 
of what state your mind is in. And I think in practice, it's similar to how I sleep on airplanes. If a plane is super noisy, I'll visualize that I am inside a clear box, a force field of sorts. And inside the box, all is quiet and calm. All the noise and chaos is on the outside of the box. In much the same way, I'm hoping my meditation practice, as pitiful as it is, will allow me to create that patch of calm water for myself within an angry sea. I've been getting some awesome runs in, especially trail runs. I'm close to setting my race calendar for the summer, and we'll talk about that in the outro today. I went back to the cardio doctor for my two-week review after the procedure, and they seem to think everything is well, but they won't declare success or failure for three months. I guess there's a burn-in period, so I'd better get that extended warranty. I've been watching my heart rate in my training, and it seems to flip less. We'll see. The trail runs have been really fun, and it's great to get back out into the green bosom of the world. I got a pair of Hoka trail shoes, and I love them so far. So go figure. All the free shoes that I've gotten over the years, and I fall in love with the ones that cost $130 a pair. Today, we have an interesting chat with Jens who has started an online peer review website for running shoes. And he's got a big idea about using the power of the crowd to rate shoes. And you might ask, what does that have to do with running, Chris? Well, you know I have a deep affection for entrepreneurs and also a fascination with the evolution of the Internet and its ability to democratize and disintermediate. So listen to what Jens and I chat about and see if you can tease out the larger moving pieces. There's a pattern there. In the first section, I talk about what people see as their purpose when they start running and what we can learn about it. In the second section, I'll chat about some stuff, that's a technical term, stuff, that I learned from hanging around venture capitalists and working with venture capitalists and how some of the stuff you assume about that whole process isn't really true. It's great to have summer. Summer is here. I feel good about the future. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. What is your purpose to start a running campaign? What should you expect? I recently made a list of things I would do if I was a beginning runner and I had to do it all over again, knowing what I know now. And my first point was that I would figure out what my purpose was. My thought was that by knowing your purpose and going into a new exercise program with that purpose, it would become stickier. You'd be less likely to quit if you knew why you were doing it. You'd be less likely to quit if the activity was somehow aligned with a higher purpose. You'd be less likely to quit if you really understood and owned your why. And I thought this was important because the typical trajectory of people is to start an exercise program but quit before it becomes part of a sustainable, healthy lifestyle. It's too common. Maybe they quit when it gets hard. Maybe they quit when they get bored. Maybe they quit when they don't get fast results. I figured that having a purpose would enable new runners 
to get through the effort, the pain, and the setbacks and get to that place where it starts to be a necessary part of your life. Wouldn't a purpose buy you enough time to internalize the running habit? Well, I was wrong. (laughs) I took an esoteric thought and I tried to retrofit it onto the reality of why people start running. And I was guilty of being academic, not realistic. Sure, it would be nice for beginning runners to have some sort of highfalutin purpose that would create the passion and gravitational pull to get them to stick with it. That would be nice in a perfect world. What the heck, while we're out in imagination land where everything is perfect, why not have every new runner take a government-funded purpose seminar where they are led through several forward-looking brainstorming sessions by a facilitator named Willow from San Diego, who's a vegan and a life coach. Then, when they finally got to put their feet on the pavement, they'd be rock sure in their commitment to a life, a lifetime of running. Yeah, that's not how it works. I actually did a wee bit of ad hoc research. Research is the wrong term. Survey is a better term. I asked a bunch of runners what their purpose was when they first started running. And I did this by posting in Simon Mann's Positive Running Facebook group. What I found was that people didn't necessarily have a purpose to begin running. But they had a reason. And that reason evolved into a purpose. The spark to take that first step was something much more mundane. Most people, myself included, started running to get in shape. That's it. I remember thinking that if I could just get out and do five miles three times a week, I could lose and keep off that 10 pounds of jiggly belly fat. And that's another big reason people begin running, to lose weight. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a valid reason to start exercising, and no exercise is going to get you there faster than running. They started with a vague intention to lose some weight and somehow made it past the hard bits, fell in love, and got hooked. Their purpose evolved from their short-term need. And that's the way change happens in us humans. We get to some point where the pain of being out of shape outweighs the pain of getting back into shape, and that's where the journey begins. A better question might be, why did you stick with it? How did it change from a short-term goal into a lifestyle? If we could isolate the aspects of that inflection point, some tactical causality that we could use to increase the percentage of survivors. Another very positive finding is that people make a difference. Some reported starting running because of a sibling or a spouse or a friend challenged them or even just set a good example. And this means that you are making a difference within your circle of influence just by doing what you do, making yourself a good example and making yourself available to help. Another response was people who started for someone else. Maybe not to suffer the ill health of a parent. Maybe to be there for their own kids and make a good example. Maybe to support a charity for someone they love. This is probably the closest we come to a a true purpose. These people started not because of pain, but because of love. Progress is never a straight line. People start and stop exercise programs all the time. There is no textbook reason 
to begin running? There probably doesn't have to be. It's probably more important to start than to spend time with Willow at the uh, off-site, understanding your purpose. So how do we use this? How do we help people get started? How do we help people stay with it? We help simply by telling our stories. Not preaching, not conjoling, not judging, just telling our stories. Telling the story of how we did it, why we stuck with it, and the joy and the passions we found in the process. We tell our stories with all the warts and the bumps, too. The blisters and broken bones, the successes and the failures, the struggles, the triumphs. We let them know that there is no straight line. There is no success or failure. There is only to start and to try. And now for our featured interview, because we can always learn something new from others. And some people are super interesting. So give me the uh, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do. So uh, I'm the founder of runrepeat.com. That's my everything together with my girlfriend. Uh-huh. Nice save. <laughs> it's, it's just because she's sitting right here. And if I didn't include it, it would not be a nice evening. And now I've had a running store before myself. And what I experienced was that what we did, we were in Denmark and Sweden. That's a population of total 10 million. And we wanted to deliver branded shoes at discounted prices, pretty much what many others do. So not too much unique about that. So our challenge was that no brands wanted to collaborate with us. If they collaborated, they would damage the brand. And I understand that they don't want to see their brands dumped in price because price dumping means the brand value is lower. Even though they're doing it themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I understand that they need to have control of things and et cetera, et cetera. So what we did was that we did parallel import because in the European Union, you can buy from any other European country, and it's 100% legit, and everything is fine. But, of course, they do not want this to happen. So they've changed the contracts with all those British, German stores that are a lot bigger. The funny thing is that in Denmark, one shoe can cost, say, $300, and in the UK, the recommended retailing price can be $200. Okay, add to that that in UK, there are more competition, so the price will be lower than it is in Denmark. So we have a lot higher prices in Scandinavia than we have in the rest of the world. And that right. just brings some arbitrage and some great uh, purchasing opportunities from other countries. What's the difference? Is the difference uh, tax or regulatory? It's tax, and then I, everything is just more expensive in Scandinavia. So Because it has to get there, and yeah, there's, not, there's less volume. And yeah, and, and prices are just generally higher in, in Denmark for everything. So, yeah. And what we did there, it was not rebellious. It was not like that, but we really wanted to, com- to, to collaborate with those brands. And I'm not going to mention specific brands, but I can say that, that one of them, when we uh, discussed with them, they mentioned that, okay, we can make a deal and we could purchase shoes from them at a price of $100, okay, and sell them for around $200. Okay, that's, that's a really fine margin, but the challenge was that we could buy them from another European country at half the price than we could right. from the brand itself. So right. <laughs> that would bring 50 bucks extra in profit. So why should we collaborate with them? Okay, we could get some fast delivery times and et cetera. But actually, it was, it was great collaborating with the other European countries. So that was when I realized that brands have so much power and um, they basically dictate what shoes are popular through marketing. 
Right. And it's almost like a classic 1960s sort of uh, Mad Men yeah. thing where they're just it's all it's all brand, it's all yeah. marketing. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's a bit sad because in any category now I'm just enthusiastic about running and running shoes, but in any category you and I and the listeners here and everyone should buy the products that are best suited them. But when a brand decides this shoe added a spring blade, which is a ridiculous shoe, must be super popular now because it's a new invention of technology. And then they just make it popular and a lot of people buy it. But what you really see is that no one likes it. They hate this shoe. I'm just sad that brands influence runners so much to buy the wrong shoes. And that's why I created right. Run Repeat to, to give the power back to the runners so that runners could beforehand get an overview of how it has performed from other runners. And, and, a, and a peer review, right? Yeah. It's a peer review. It's a little bit of a crowdsource because you're going, you know, you're letting actual people review. Uh, you get enough volume there. And marketing is known forever mm. that the most powerful influencer on a purchase is a recommendation, mm. yeah. right? From someone you know. Yeah. But with the internet, what happens is you get a powerful recommendation from someone you don't know. Yeah. Um, and it's almost as powerful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the negative reviews are as powerful as the positive reviews. Yeah, even more powerful, I would say, yeah. <laughs> yes. But what they found was if you had a product that didn't have any negative reviews, people wouldn't buy that because uh, they didn't trust it. Uh, okay. But if it has one or two negative reviews, that's perfect. Yeah. Because then they trust it mm. that it's, you know, it's not. Outlandish. So okay. yeah, that's interesting. So so you've taken that power of sort of the the crowdsource and the and the review and applied that to running shoes, which yeah. is actually brilliant. You couldn't find a category that it would be more susceptible to that. No, because I'll I'll tell you the number one question that I get asked, and mm -hmm. anybody who has anything to do with running, mm -hmm. the number one question you will get asked is which running <laughs> shoes should I buy? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and as much as I say you're asking the wrong question, people don't they they want to know, right? Mm. Yeah. Actually, now you just mentioned this study about recommendations. I have one f funny thing that I, I do a lot of number crunching at Run Repeat to see what patterns are there. And one thing that, that struck me pretty much was that if you take all the shoes at Run, Run Repeat and you see how long time do people spend on each shoe, okay? So you have the different shoes at, at the site. What I found was that shoes that had a rating of 4.0 or higher versus those below 3.5, on those with the higher rating, people spend 26% more time. Because typically, people come to run repeat because they search for a specific shoe and wants to read a review or wants to see what other people thought about the shoe. And right. then they already a little bit decided that they wanted this shoe because they already had an idea that this was the specific shoe they liked. Uh, and then they come to the site and when they get the recognition from other people, so the social recognition that they say this is a good shoe, then they spend more time on the site. So one might think, oh, then you just have to give all shoes five stars. <laughs> no, and that would ruin the integrity. And actually, we, we do degrade many shoes if they don't have enough ratings, etc. And if ratings are from a specific area too much, we degrade it. And so we, we do a lot of degradation and as you see the highest shoe has 4.6 actually when you take all the reviews the average rating is 4.5 but if all shoes are having great reviews then which one is better than another right so what we did i used to teach in statistics at copenhagen business school so what we did was that we tried to 
most shoes are rated between 4 and 5, and the average is 4.5. But then all shoes are just great. So what we did, we tried to take those that had a bad rating and see if we in some way statistically could make it more visible to the user, to the, to the runner, that it, had a, uh, that it was not as good. Because actually a rating below 4.5 is less good than average. And who wants to buy a shoe less good than average? Yeah, so you spread the curve a little bit yeah, and you yeah, did exactly. some, al- some algorithmic stuff. Yeah. Being an ex-teacher, you know how to spread the, the grading curve. Yeah. That's uh, standard practice. But <laughs> you probably have the other interesting effect that people won't even look at them if they're below a certain number. No, exactly. Right? Because so, one of the things they're trying to get from your, your site is they're trying to get filtering. Mm. Right? They're just hammered with all this stuff. And you don't know, right? The average runner doesn't know. Mm. So they say, knock it down to two or three for me so yeah. I can choose. Yeah. So I was looking at some of the shoes that made it to the top, and there were ones that actually I'm not familiar with, like the Mizunos. Mm. And it was a lot of racing shoes, like mm. real heavy competitive yeah. shoes. Yeah. So maybe that's because those guys are more passionate about their shoes. Um, I didn't see my Hoka's, which I love. I would think Hoka's would score high <laughs> because the people who love Hoka's really love yeah. them, right? I think Hoka's are very much like it's a love and hate shoe. My opinion about Hoka is it's uh, it's trendy, it's trendy, and it's great that we have them there. Um, but let's see how they perform in the long run. <laughs> in the long run, that's when they're the best. In the long run, for old heavy guys like me, that's when they're good. Yeah. Because you also have all those movements. I mean, if, if something is getting big, then you have small niches that will spring off a bit. First, you have like, then marathon running became huge. Then you had some niches dropping out of marathon running, ultra running, triathlon and trail running. Then trail running became huge. Then you have mountain running, sky running. So, yeah. and, and the same with the shoes. Yeah. And, and I think it's great that there are some companies that try to do things a little different because honestly, it's my opinion that 90% of the shoes are identical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're so, right. You're so, right. You could roll out a neutral cushion Mizuno, yeah. Brooks, Asics, yeah. and I could run in any of them. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But it all comes down to personal preference. Yeah. One of the other things I like that you do on, and again, you're not a sponsor. I'm not paying you. You're not paying me. None of this stuff. We're just interested in the business model. One of the interesting things that's ours, you also link to uh, reviews, like magazine reviews mm. of the shoes, mm. which is good because that has sort of a, a third-party cachet to it mm. that says, you know, right or wrong, here's what the guy yeah. at Runner's World or Competitor.com yeah. or whatever yeah. said about this shoe. So you get the peer review, and then you have the uh, those tend to be a little bit more factual. Yeah. Whereas a peer review tends to be, you know, I like them. Yeah, I agree. I right? agree. Yeah. So it's a nice mix. Yeah, I, I think that it's the same with movies. Take IMDb, um, and and take experts who review movies. Those experts giving movies five out of five. I hate those movies typically because yeah. <laughs> then, it, then it's some crazy movie and, and right. sometimes yeah. I just want a mainstream movie uh, right. with, with some great shots in it. and yeah. So, yeah. so it's a mix you need because some of the experts can also be very geeky, which right. is maybe not what everyone wants. So yeah. Right. And also they're paid to be opinionated. The, yeah. um, and that's, that's one of the things you'll have to work in your business model is that 
controversy is very appealing to people. Mm. So if you can get those people who hate it and those people mm. who love it and get them on the same page, yeah. that community is actually a very vibrant community yeah. Yeah. and results in a lot of yeah. a lot of noise, yeah. which results in clicks, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing. And I, I was looking at some of your infographics. You're a you're a data guy, and you have some amazing amount of big data to work with now. Yeah. Right. You yeah. were saying you had like. 2.6 million registered runners or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some, some r- ridiculous. So there's a big pool of data around our sport now, yeah. which, again, if you look at the convergence, now we can start doing some big data stuff and teasing out some other trends, yeah. right? Yeah, I agree. Just one thing I wanted to mention was that if there's anyone here listening thinking about doing a website where they review shoes, I would love to see someone who takes in shoes and doesn't give them a rating above four and just shoots those shoes down because the typical trend is that two things. Experts get shoes from the brands. Okay, some of them might have a bias towards saying positive things, just as the magazines. In all those running magazines, you never see something below 4.0 because then they'll not get more shoes. <laughs> and that's a that's a scale of one to five. Yeah, yeah, that's a scale from one to five. Um, so I would love to see a running shoe expert who actually like is super super critical and also gives gives shitty ratings to some of the shoes. That would that would create so much uh, integrity to this guy. I think. Yeah. But one thing you also have to keep in mind. Now I'm criticizing a little some of the experts. Is that an expert, of course, wants some of the shoes that he know will be good. I mean, why does he want a shoe that he knows is bad? So, of course, they also get typically the good shoes to review. But, uh, yeah, right. that was just right. Well, I'll have people send me shoes to review, and I'll be in the middle of training for a qualification try or something. I'll go, I'm not wearing another pair of shoes now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> There's no way I'm climbing into your shoes for a hard workout, mm. you know? No. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the runner's world stuff, it's just not to pick on them mm. because they are what they are, you mm. know. That God love them, they are mm. what they are in our sport. Mm. But they're all just fluff pieces. Mm. All the shoe stuff is just like, there's nothing there. It's, uh, it's an inch deep. I agree. You can always say very positive things about Runner's World, also on any other magazines. They inspire people to run. They create knowledge for runners. They share knowledge. They motivate people. There's so many great things in the magazines also. Yeah. Regarding yeah. the numbers there, one thing that I really want to do is another research to look at what running shoes do people use. Let's say, let's say you sit at New York Marathon and then you take an image of the first 1,000 participants. Yeah. So you take a picture of the shoes and then you yeah. take it from participant number 10,000 to 11,000 and then you take it from 40,000 to 41,000. And then you go right. and analyze all those shoes See what shoes are they? What are the weight? What is the weight of them? What are what kind of shoes do different people run in? Of course, there will yeah. be a bias in the beginning because all the top athletes will be running in Nike or Adidas because they are sponsored. Because and yeah, yeah they'll all be racing. Flats, yeah, exactly. Right. But it could be interesting to see is there a pattern in for the recreational runners and what finish finish time they have? Yeah, I would bet the front. You know, three thousand or so. The front third are going to be a lot of neutral cushion. Yeah. Um, not a lot of structure, right? Yeah, and flat. So, yeah, flatter and and less structure. Mm-hmm. And then as you get towards the end, it's going to be all the structure, right? Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah, so, and I think the the middle part is going to be the Asics and the Brooks and all the popular mm-hmm. brands, yeah. right? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I know all those brands. In my other life, they're actually customers of mine in a, in a sense, okay. and I've worked inside their operations, yeah. not on the retail side, but on the, on the, on the supply chain side. Yeah. And the reason all these people are selling shoes is because it's a very high-margin business. Mm. You know, that yeah. shoe to make in China, yeah. you know, direct cost is, you know, what, 10 bucks, mm. right? Yeah. And so the rest of it's all either margin or, uh, you know, cost to get it to the consumer. Yeah. So there's probably a play here, disintermediate all that structure in between the factory and the end user, yeah. right? Yeah. One would wonder why that hasn't happened yet. It's probably because the brands, the brands are supporting the price, yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. That's very interesting, indeed. So you also, I saw you also had some, you like to play with the data. You had an mm-hmm. infographic that went sort of semi-viral on you for the marathons? Yeah. Where did where'd you pull that data from? Um, I emailed a lot of marathons and wanted if, asked if they wanted to participate. And then, I, then they emailed me all their results, which compiled to 2.2 million marathon results, which is quite a lot. And then I just went nuts. So I was just like, I had some hypotheses myself, but you will get surprised by what the numbers reveal when you try to find some conclusions. And that's, right. that's very interesting because you can have as many hypotheses as you like, but the most interesting find, things and findings you'll always find when, when, when you are done with the research. Then you're like, whoa, what, what, what's going on here? So what, what surprised you the most out of those, those um, numbers? Actually, the first initial study, I started it because I was watching an Ironman in Copenhagen. And um, this is, as people know, a very big thing to do. I mean, uh, it's very exhaustive. And people spend years to practice to an Ironman. How come that they run the last 10 kilometers 30% slower than the first 10 kilometers? I mean, why didn't they practice mentally and strategically just for 10 minutes and slow down a bit more? The pattern is so clear. It happens for everyone. So I saw all my friends on these apps. You can check them. And I saw... They are all slowing down. What's the pattern here? And then I started number crunching just for Copenhagen Ironman. I was like, wow, that's interesting. They're slowing down so much. And then I decided, let's go big scale. Let's, uh, let's go for the moonshot and make just the most exhaustive marathon study ever. And that was what I did. So uh, I just wanted to document how much people slow down during a marathon. Because what's ideally any distance above, let's say, one kilometer you want to run with an as even pace as possible. That's sure. most efficient. It doesn't make sense to sprint the first 500 meters of a marathon. And what I found was that we slowed down a lot. And then it surprised me that men slowed down more than women. That was where I saw a story uh, to get some publicity, of course. Then what the media does with such a story is another story in itself. Because <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very good story because then you could change it to women are better runners than men, uh, stronger than stronger men, men etc. Men are yeah. the stupid ones, etc., etc. Yeah, you could yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. went to through like 50 newspapers around the world. And then afterwards, I did another one, which also went through another 50s, more 70, 80, I think. That's just what I have tracked online. And uh, then there's a lot more that I know just did it offline. So that drives traffic back to your business, though, right? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's good. 
Yeah. So what are the what are the search terms that you're optimizing for? Mm, ideally, I would be ranking number one at running shoes. <laughs> running shoes, yeah. not running shoe review. Uh, running shoe review will be the first one, but uh, ideally, I would also be number one at running shoes. Um, right. But of course, my website is is not that old yet, so I need to build reputation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not something you do in, in very short time. Right. But we have grown very, very fast. So Facebook, for the first 26 weeks of their existence, they grew. 21% per week. We grew 26% per week. And what's that growth method measured in? And number of visits. Visits. And okay. uh, then afterwards, since then, we've been growing around uh, 10% average, 8, 10% average per week. And you know, if you know, if you know calculus and just uh, compound interest, you know, if, if you do 8, 8% per week, that, that can be a huge number. But of course, this will fade out and We've been great so far, and we try to consistently be better and better. But I think it's more interesting to see what things can I do at Run Repeat that makes people enjoy the product more. And that's where my focus is very much now. So what would you say your purpose is? Because mm-hmm. you can't do these sort of things without a purpose. My purpose is that we will change the way that people buy running shoes. Just as people watch movies before they watch a movie, they check it must have a minimum of X on certain platforms. Some do that, at least. Um, and that's what I hope. So I hope that people will buy better running shoes that are suited them better. Right. And, and of course, at the moment, there are no ads on the website. We don't recommend any brands. We don't do any reviews ourselves. We don't recommend any shoes. It's all based on the runners. But I hope I have some cash left from uh, the store that I sold. And uh, it's not that I live very modest now and, and have a income of around zero dollar. Yeah, but in, in uh, EU money, that's three times zero. <laughs> yeah, that's the exchange rate. <laughs> so it's three times zero, I earn. Yeah, that's true. And we just moved to Norway now. And Denmark is an expensive country. I think everything, you can add like 40% to the price in the US. But then you move to Norway and it's another 20%. So it hurts so a little. What- so what's your plan to, uh, you know, if you keep scaling like that, obviously the cost scale with the usage as well. So you have to, you know, you have to upgrade your servers and yeah. your disk space and all that stuff. Sure. So what's your plan yeah. to, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, no, are you going to go, you're going to go get some money or how are you going to, yeah. how are you going to monetize? Yeah. I hope that I can forever keep run repeat hundred percent independent and with no bias at all, but I will make money. But I will not make money on the runner or the stores. Oh, in the stores in some way. What I will do is, now I had a running store myself. And one challenge for us was that to increase our conversion rate. So the number of people who visit our sites, what percentage of them buys a shoe in the end. And there are hundreds of different parameters you can optimize on. And one parameter you can optimize on is if there are reviews of the products. But if right. you go and buy a running shoe at runningwarehouse.com, the chances that you will go back and review the shoe is very low. So the challenge for right. all, all these e-commerce stores is that they uh, can't get enough reviews. And it's proven very, very clearly that reviews typically increase the conversion rate between 5 and 15%. So sure. if you do 100 million revenue a year and you can add another 10% to that, that's 10 million a year in revenue. That has some value. So what my plan is that I will facilitate e-commerce stores 
to implement our reviews so that they right. so so you become the review platform the central yeah. review platform yeah. as a service yeah. to the e-com stores yeah. that makes sense that's the plan or the, or the or the e-com channels of the brands and all yeah. that stuff exactly because this is a this of course might also have interest to Nike and Adidas and I'm very happy to collaborate with those because I think collaboration is where magic happens um, yeah. it's not that I'm 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 far from against brands because all brands do good shoes and bad shoes, but it could create a lot of integrity to those that they have a third-party uh, independent website that includes their reviews. So right, it could it like you said, it's going to increase the conversion no matter yeah. where the reviews are coming from. Yeah, that's interesting because you could clearly quickly monetize by having the click-throughs and you know just having whatever you know version of Amazon yeah. AdSense you know that, yeah. that you there. Yeah. Uh, but that's that you know it's only going to get so far. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and uh, I want to do something bigger than that because I'm tired of uh, websites with too many ads, and I'm not a believer in ads, and I'm a minimalist myself by heart. And therefore, I want to to do something that benefits everyone. And I I just thought that ah, it actually was when I met with uh, one e-commerce store, not about this, but they just mentioned. Oh, those reviews couldn't we couldn't we implement that at our website? And I was like, right. You got it. You got yeah. it. That was the it. light bulb went off, yeah. right? Yeah, but it's it's not yeah. my, it's not my focus now. I think I have around with my modest lifestyle. I have another eight to twelve months where I can keep it unmonetized. And why not monetize now? You might might ask. Uh, I'm a big believer in focus. And now I'm focusing on what can I do at Run Repeat to make people spend more time there. Right. You want to scale first. Yeah. And actually, yeah. one thing I found was that <clears throat> that's that's very very Silicon Valley, very Y Combinator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those, those guys make me crazy. Really? <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> most of the time they're selling air. The, it's yeah. just, there's nothing there. Yeah. That's true, but. There are always two sides of that story. I mean, uh, the Facebook in the beginning, it was, what's it worth? And it, you know, all of this. Yeah. Of course, it, there's nothing better than a sustainable business that makes money every single year and makes a sustainable profit. That's boring. <laughs> but, it, but it also makes some, it's not necessary for me to monetize now. And I don't want to add any ads. That's a focused approach, which is good, right? When you get deep into a startup, you know, a couple of things happen. One is, uh, what's the word they use for it? The season of despair, they call it, I don't know it, that. Right? Tell me about the it. Season, the season of despair, I think, is what they call it, is when you start running out of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have as many customers as you want. And, you know, you start to get depressed. Yeah. And, you know, as, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you can't be depressed, no. right? Because you have to be out talking to customers and partners and all this stuff yeah. all the time. So you have to stay focused on what it is that you want to do. You have to stay focused on that purpose and that vision and not worry about that other stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because people, what they tend to do is they get depressed and then they start changing their model. They start giving in to mm-hmm. the pressure to do something else. Mm-hmm. Right? It sounds like you're very much into startups and, and, and this stuff. I read... I read and study very broadly. I have uh, I have been a principal in uh, in startup before, but not in the sense that you're doing it. I'm, I'm fascinated with the internet, though. Yeah. Okay. With the whole new lifestyle yeah. that we have here. I'll give you some book recommendation afterwards. Then I think I have some. All right. You like. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I, I read around one book a week, a bit more yeah. than one book a week. And yeah. Me too. 
You do really? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, interesting. We but I've been e- doing it for I've been doing it for fifty years. So Whoa! <laughs> way ahead of you, right? Hey, you look like someone in the twenties. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. You must have a horrible camera. <laughs> so, all right, I'll let you go. We're at uh, thirty-five minutes, so I'm gonna have to do some editing here. Sure. Um, but we'll let you go. So, so uh, it was fan- fantastic talking to you. Very, very, uh, very fascinating. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Managing like a venture capitalist. What if it was your money? Often you'll hear the advice to manage within your company as if you were the owner. As if the decisions you make would affect your own pocketbook. Which, of course, they do, even if indirectly. I have never been a venture capitalist. I have never been part of a big private equity outfit. But I have started and sold a company. I have been on the management team of another venture-backed company, and I've taken that through sale. And I have worked closely with venture capitalists. I like working with them because they're bright and powered people, for the most part, and adversaries of the status quo. A myth we have is that venture money invests in great ideas. Certainly the quality and the uniqueness of the idea is one of the weighting factors, but maybe not as important as you think. What the venture capitalists really invest in are people. And it turns out there's a surfeit of brilliant ideas in the business world. Good ideas are a dime a dozen. The best ideas don't always win. The best ideas don't always make money. The best ideas are only worthwhile if they have good people driving them. And the venture capitalists don't see themselves as idea brokers. They see themselves as company builders. And companies are built one higher at a time. They are not investing so much in your idea, but your ability to drive that idea to success. They are investing in your capacity vis-a-vis the good idea. You still need a viable idea, but it is the amalgam of your team and the idea that is the thing worth investing in, not the idea. That's the company building competency, taking that viable idea and wrapping the right team around it to make it successful. If it's a good enough idea, the challenge is finding the right team. Part of that, of course, is your competency in the area of the domain expertise that your idea lives in. Part of that is your track record of having done it before with another idea. A big part of it, the most important part of it, a big part of it is your unreasonable and irrational passion about that idea. That passion manifests in you telling a story with a glow in your eyes that touches fire in the souls of the audience, the pitch. If your pitch can fire their souls, then maybe it can fire the market. That's how founders get funded. This is the amount of single-minded focus that will be needed to stay the course against all obstacles as you drive your company to success. That's where passion mixes with grit to fuel execution. Can you be that person who steadfastly charges forward when everything is on fire. 
As the company grows, the venture capitalists, as stewards of that growth, will begin adapting the team to fuel the growth. And often this means swapping out some of the earlier passion-driven talent with more steady-handed process-based managers. What you can learn from this within your own company is that you are that venture capitalist. Your product is only going to get you so much success. You need to hire passionate people to drive the growth and success. Or you need to take the people you have and drive them, lead them to be passionate about a result. So if you think like a venture capitalist, you build an organization of driven, passionate people who will create the company you want, not fill the holes in the company as it stands today. One of the classic management mistakes is to start with the people you already have and try to design an organization around those skill sets. Instead, instead design the organization you need to succeed and then find the people who can make it go. And they may not be the people you have now. They probably won't be. If you have an idea and you're looking for capital, stop worrying over the idea and start working on your story and your passion. What are the examples of where you have used your passion to push through and seize victory? Get good at telling that story. People will pay for passion. If you're looking to work at a venture-backed company, bring that passion to the dinner or the breakfast interview. Bring that pitch, that story. And even if you don't get the job, you will have made an impression. You get the meeting based on your background and your domain expertise. You get the money or the job based on your passion and your ability to tell that story well. And your ability to be unflappable in the face of pressure. Money and talent is attracted by the irrational gravity of passion. Careers and companies succeed or fail, one interaction at a time. Those interactions start because of product, knowledge, and experience and domain expertise. Those interactions, those moments of truth, they close because of the passion you bring to your story. Entrepreneurs craft reality from nothingness using passion. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. That was a good one, bud. What did I tell you? Isn't Jens an interesting thinker? What? You don't like what I'm doing here? <laughs> I've got good news for you, then. You have reached the end of episode four. Dash three one three. In a few weeks, we'll mark eight years since the first episode of Run Run Live came crawling ugly and badly recorded to life. That's nothing. Steve Runner of Fidibidations is having a 10-year anniversary this summer, and Adam is putting together a celebration audio collection for him. So send Adam your audio and let Steve know how much he's influenced your life. Do you know who my uh, first interview was? It was my buddy Frank, episode one, and episode 100, too, I think, maybe 99, 101, but I talked to Frank a couple times, and I actually went for a nice, easy ride with Frank out on the Minuteman Trail down to Alewife last Saturday. That's in Massachusetts. It's a rail trail. 
he can't run anymore because he's got a bad hip, but I'm going to talk him into buying a mountain bike and doing the Hampshire 100 with me. Yes, I'm going to spin up my mountain biking this summer as a change of pace. I got a bike for my youngest, and I'm going to see if I can corrupt her as well. I'm also quite close to pulling the trigger on an Olympic distance triathlon. I'll have to spin up my swimming, which is hard for me because I suck at it. But again, it will be good for me to get off the road marathon hamster wheel and let my body heal. And that, my friends, is, I guess, the biggest news and the hardest thing for me to do. I'm not going to try to qualify for Boston this summer. The new qualification deadline of September 1st just doesn't work for my life balance with my procedure and stuff I want to do. I'm going to drive my own schedule. I'm going to drive my own schedule and control my own life here. And if it happens, uh, it happens next year. We'll see how I do this summer and come back to it with fresh eyes and fresh legs and a fresh perspective in the fall. You know it will all work out. When you stop seeking, the answer sometimes appears. I set up my Hood to Coast charity, and you can log into the show notes and see that. I mean, it's very important to me. I've lost so many people who are close to me to cancer that I just want to keep supporting that. And I think it's something that we can do. As I mature in my years, I begin to understand that life isn't about a series of discrete goals. Life isn't a straight line. Life is a compilation of seasons. And each season is different. Each season has its challenges and its gifts. The season you're in is neither good nor bad. It just is. So you have to be present in your current season of life and live it. Don't live in past seasons. Don't live in future seasons. Live in the now. That is your season. And as you turn, 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 I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Is your unreasonable and irrational Irrational. <laughs> I invent new words sometimes.